This podcast is brought to you by Audible, the leading provider of digital audiobooks. With over 180,000 audiobooks and more to choose from, you're sure to find many you'll enjoy. This week, I recommend Hitmakers, The Science of Popularity in an Age of Distraction by Derek Thompson. Uh, I'm going to go into why I'm recommending this book this week in a little bit, but uh, just take my word for it. Just stop not trusting for once and, and try leaning in coin a phrase. Try trusting for once in your goddamn life. Uh, you can download Hitmakers for free at audibletrial.com slash threat surface and keep it even if you decide not to keep Audible after your 30-day free trial membership. You can even like, don't, don't, I'm sure you can, you can imagine what I was about to, I was about to like, uh, I was about to like clue you into to, to, uh, some, some kind of like Audible scam, which I'm sure if I were to have actually shared it here on the show, it would get me like banned for life from the Audible affiliate program. So, you know, I'm sure that my audience can imagine what the Audible scam is. So uh, I'm not even going to feel the need to share it here on the show. Um, just hit up audibletrial.com slash threat surface, read Hitmakers by Eric Thompson, and um, make all your shit go viral. Uh Obviously, I haven't read the book yet because uh, it's not like I'm swimming in virality over here. But um, doing the best I can over here. I'm uh, trying to finish my new movie. I um, you know, just trying to just trying to hold this shit together, guys. Uh, I'm Julie Bush. Uh, this is Threat Surface. This is a screenwriting. This is a show, a video and audio show about the intersection of technology and storytelling. This week, our guest is Professor Jeff Jarvis. You may know him as uh, Twitter's top thinkfluencer. Uh, he's also known as Rurik Bradbury. That's his real name. Um, we're going to get into everything. Uh, if you don't know of him, then you're probably not uh, one of Twitter and media's elite. So, um, and you're probably not welcome around here. Yeah, I think that's all. That's all I need to say about him. Um, Okay, we haven't actually recorded the interview yet, so I don't know if there's any technical issues yet. Hope not. Um, let's just move on to table topics. Let's just say that uh, Professor Jeff Jarvis is is basically uh, the most thinkfluenced guy around. Let's put it that way. Okay, table topics. Uh, first up. The quality of movies is just as good as TV uh, these days, but the quality of distribution in TV is much better. So that was the that was why I recommended that book, Hitmakers, because he gets into the idea that distribution is as important, like the quality of distribution distribution is as important as the quality of the actual content itself, because like. Like, every time you hear some blowhard, um, you know, go on and on at a party about, like, oh, TV is so much better nowadays, like, ask them, like, the last five movies that they saw. And, like, chances are, like, they were, like, the most, like, hacky, horrible, you know, big, bloated studio, like, barf cat catastrophes, um, meaning that, like, you know, the, 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 the movies that were, like, the most distributed, like, you know, that, that were like, that were, there was far more spent in distribution than, than was actually spent on like the quality of the filmmaking. Um, my point is, um, distribution in TV is, is a plus, um, distribution in movies is, is yeah, arguably falling behind. Um, it hasn't caught up technologically as, uh, as, as distribution in movie in, in, in television. Uh, I'm not saying that there isn't great uh, storytelling happening in television. Obviously, there is. I work in both media. Um, I just think there's there's a little bit more to the story going on, where 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 like sort of the average viewer just you know they're sort of like oh but what gets marketed to me like I I I only you know me average viewer I see this like you know, highly artistic, loved over thing marketed to me on the left hand. And then I see this horrible piece of shit get marketed to me over here on the right hand. Meanwhile, they're not 
seeing the like highly loved, highly artistic movies get marketed to them because those pieces don't get marketed to them. They don't get distributed to them necessarily. So that's sort of the disconnect. Um, so read that book, Hitmakers, and and you know to get that that's you know hearing a podcast about that book was what made me first start thinking about this idea. Um, although it was it was an idea that I was a little bit aware of already. Uh, next table topic. Uh, I just have written down here on my notes, new Uber post with new allegations. Now, the hilarious thing about this is that uh, this could be referring to like any one of like 10 different things. Um, man, Uber is like a clown car of, of like illegal activities. And uh, it's like bros like are, are, are like, it's like they're in some kind of like reality show challenge to like out asshole themselves and you know between Travis you know getting caught on video telling one of his own drivers to like take personal responsibility for getting paid shit um or like you know more and more women who work at the at the company's corporate headquarters keep coming forward and 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 you know putting forth more and more allegations about how they're being treated and in the workplace um it it just the list goes on and on and on and on. I mean, like, I don't have any particular, like, you know, I don't have, like, any personal or or professional interest in Uber. Like, I don't write about Uber. Or I don't write about, like, you know, the access economy or sharing economy or anything like that. Like, that's not, like, my, you know, it's not what I focus on. Um, I just sort of have a spectator. It's like a spectator sport at this point. It's like, you know, Roman gladiators, like, just watching these people, like, tear, tear themselves apart. Um, but, you know, it, it, like the same qualities that, that you know, they're hyper focused on growth, like, you know, and, and like their own assholery, like, can't help from like, can't help that they, they can't help themselves from like, tearing themselves apart from the inside of, of, of just, of, of their sheer awfulness. Let's put it that way. Like, they can't help but just being purely awful, horrific examples of human beings and, and just having to like interact with other human beings and manage other human beings, interact with the public and interact with users. Um, and, you know, and being like a consumer facing company where like, you know, the consumers have to actually like, like the brand and like the culture that they're like, you know, literally trusting their lives to every single day. It, 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 it's like watching a, um, a modern Greek tragedy. I think that's, that's my delight in it. Like as a dramatist, um, it's fun. It's just something to like watch with popcorn. It's it's like a fun thing. Obviously, it's not fun for the for the women who have been working there and for the drivers who are getting paid shit and um and who are gonna lose lose their jobs in a few years when automated cars are are coming to town. That's not fun. Um, the, the implosion quality is is fun. Okay, my next table topic just says, bros be appropriating. Um. I think I jotted this down because I think I must have been having a Twitter conversation about uh, the way in which, like, the most bro-y dudes, especially online, like, this is a real, like, uh, artifact of online culture where, like, like the bro the dude, the more he feels the need to... I, I'm, I must have talked about this on this show already. Like, this, is, this has been a real theme of this show. But the, the broer the dude, uh, the more he feels the need to be, like, king feminist. And, like, you know, I'm going to be, like, the king of your culture. And I'm going to, I'm going to like, oh, yeah, you think you're a lady? You think you know, you know, the issues going on and, you know, that affect you personally and emotionally and, like, that keep you from getting jobs and getting ahead in your life and your career? Well, I'm going to be the best at that, too. I'm going to appropriate the shit out of, uh, your feminism. And I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to be the greatest. And what made me think about that was everybody was talking about like what a mensch this one Hollywood producer is. And like, Oh, he's such a mensch. He's the nicest guy in town. By the way, like everybody always says that about like somebody in Hollywood, particularly men, like if they're just like successful. Um, but like this one guy that I'm talking about, like, I just know him as somebody who was like, just always arguing with everybody. I said, with everything I said on Twitter, and, you know, any women who, women online know of this phenomenon where, like, guys just will, like, argue with everything you say. Um, and then this one, like, oh, you know, this Hollywood producer where everybody thinks is such a mensch and the nicest guy in town, like, 
he, he would just like argue with everything I said. Um, and then finally like unfollowed me because like, he just couldn't take, like, just couldn't take like, I guess my brand of feminism, you know, anymore, but, but, oh, but he's the biggest feminist in town, supposedly. Um, okay, next up. Oh, the way how in Hollywood, how you have to constantly sing everybody's praises. Um, so this is a phenomenon where, um, because the, the culture is so heated, um, and I'm, I haven't been around tech long enough to know if it's like this in tech too, but I, I, I would imagine it might be. Um, but in Hollywood, like everything is so um, high pressure and, and he, like the climate is so heated and things fall apart, like right and left. Like, you know, you could have this like multi-million huge deal and it all rests on basically like the people getting along and like everybody just sort of like things working out smoothly. Um, so there's this huge need to um, just kind of like uh, bend over backwards to like sing everybody everybody's praises like all the time, and so it, it creates this like this this hilarious like inflated culture of like everyone, especially in public, like kind of like going on and on like how great everyone is and and like you know oh so and so is the best and the greatest and like like everyone's just like just working hard over time to um, make everybody feel extra comfortable and special and like, no, so-and-so is the greatest and so-and-so is the greatest person I've ever worked with. And, um, and it, it, like, it, I, I remember I was dating somebody and um, like, we went to see a movie and I was like, afterwards, like we were in bed and I was literally sitting there trying to figure out like, which of the people who made the movie did I, was I obligated to write to, to like congratulate? <laughs> like, and he was like, I can't even imagine feeling the need to do that in my industry. I was like, welcome to Hollywood. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a whole thing. It's, it's a whole thing. Like, uh, and like how long, like, would it be too long to wait after opening weekend or like, it, like there's this whole protocol where, you know, like it, it's, there's definitely like a Hollywood culture and there's all these norms and you have to, you have to dance very delicately around the norms um, for fear of breaking them and, um, I'm getting ridden out of town on a rail, quite frankly. Um, Okay. I think I, I've got I've got a lot more to say about a lot of a lot more issues, but um it's getting time for me to interview Mr. Professor Jeff Jarvis. So uh that's up now. Thanks for watching and listening, guys. <laughs> Professor Jeff Jarvis, otherwise known as Rurik Bradbury. Did your parents name you after a Cadbury chocolate? <laughs> they did not. My parents were um, Russian students, and they gave me a pretentious name, Rurik, who is the first king of Russia, which is a lot to live up to. Okay. But um, Bradbury is, like, very old. It's from the, many centuries ago. I have a family tree from the 1400s, but they were just some guys, random people. I believe that. To me, it sounds like something that would come out of, like, a Cadbury egg or something like that. Um, we'll get back to this, because this name sounds made up, along with your uh, also made-up name, at Professor Jeff Jarvis, which is your parody account on Twitter. Uh, I've got a lot of questions to ask you. Number one question. How dare you? Oh, I dare. <laughs> you dare, huh? It's, a, it, it's all about courage. It, it takes a lot of courage to impersonate a uh, uh, a journalism professor, right? Uh, uh, a, a, a First Amendment, um, what is he, a First Amendment fundamentalist who gets so upset about being parodied with satire that he threatens a lawsuit? Is that right? Is that what, is that what he did? 
there was something like that. I mean, it was kind of ludicrous. The um, but but the thing is that he he sees this as an impersonation. I see it as just happens to have the same name. Originally, it was a parody. It really has nothing to do with him, but he's kind of miffed because it has uh, the same, almost the same name as as he does, and it seems to distract from his uh, personal brand. So there's some irony in the idea of a of a journalism guy who's like made all like made his bones and made his career on like oh first amendment and like you know free speech and satire and everything getting real upset and like trying to like basically like take your um you know satire of him and other people like this sort of like mix of a lot of different of you know media of pundits basically trying to take you offline like that's that's an inherently comic premise, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. But very common, I think. I mean, a lot, lot of people say things uh, other people should do when they want to do the opposite. You know, Trump doesn't like anonymous sources unless he's the source that's anonymous and so on. And, and yeah. like, Standards. What, what's ironic is the more he kind of, like, bloviates and, like, you know, gets more and more upset, it, it's like the more he plays into the comic persona of him and the other people that you're kind of parodying, um, people like Tim Ferriss, um, Clay Shirky, Seth Godin, all of these, like, like you call them thinkfluencers. Like, did you create the word thinkfluencer or, or was that just sort of in the ether? I think I did. I, was, I mean, I invented it in my head yeah. a few years ago. And, and then one time I looked and there was like one instance of that word existing, um, on Twitter before then, uh, who knows, but it was just like a, a random list of things, influence, think influence, or something, something. So it wasn't actually used as a, as a word with meaning. So that that is maybe one small thing for my LinkedIn account, which I can claim to have invented. Yeah, I, I, I can endorse you for, like, word invention and for thinkfluencer invention, that kind of thing. Also ironic in that you've been thinkfluenced into endorsing me for it. Yeah, you thinkfluenced me into endorsing. Um, I actually have a favor to ask you. Could you... Uh, could you endorse me on Tinder for a few things? Um, <laughs> that's actually one of your jokes. You recommend a friend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'd like you, you had a you had a joke where you you said like Tinder should start like uh, getting endorsements like LinkedIn or something like that. Which... I thought news this evening Tinder's got a special uh, influencer edition or something they just launched um, called <laughs> Tinder Select. You're kidding, right? Or is that a Jeff Jarvis joke? I'm dead. How do I sign up? <laughs> I, I think you may need to get that cloud score up somewhat. Okay, okay. So I would need you to kind of like recommend me, like get me in there. Okay. Mm-hmm. We're, we're I do. I have coaching for Tinder Select. It's eight hundred dollars per hour. Um, we're gonna need you to talk about this off air because. Um, <laughs> Yeah, definitely need to talk about this. Um, okay, so Jeff Jarvis seems, he has said that, the real Jeff Jarvis, he has said that one of his biggest problems about your account is that you're not a better comedian. What do you say to that charge? So it's wonderfully ironic that someone without a sense of humor um, uh, complains about the other person not being a better comedian. Um Pretty sharp words. There's so many different layers of irony. I, I don't want my head to start spinning. Um, so he he actually is someone who's a, a um, an absolutist defender of uh, the crowdsourcing wisdom of the crowds and so on. He should be saying that um, that it's as popular as the crowds voted to be. Well, that, uh, that it would was be... truly terribly unfunny, and it wouldn't uh, you know, resonate to have followers and so on. Yeah, I mean, I, I've read, you You have shared some of the real Jeff Jarvis's phrases. Um, he has said stuff like, creepy is sometimes just a synonym for the unfamiliar. Um, which, you know, like, I hate when that unfamiliar guy followed me home last night. <laughs> I just unfamiliar. Um, another thing he said was, each time you don't share, a relationship loses its wings. Um, a, a lot of this stuff sounds very, like, uh almost like men's rights, like he should be posting on Reddit or something. 
It's it's weird. I mean, there was a period of time, I think, when there wasn't nearly enough text skepticism. And some some of his writing a few years ago is of that era is kind of like a shill, uh, a water carrier for Google. Uh, and there are lots of other people who you know, carry water for Facebook. Um, coincidence that those companies pay for business class flights to conferences and so on. Uh, purely a coincidence. But these people... Uh, um, emphasize only the upside of the platforms, better access to information, um, connecting the world, and so on and so on. And it's almost like they purposefully erase all the bad side of private companies having a monopoly on knowledge and so on. Um, so there's a whole bunch of these people out there, and I, I parry them, parry them quite, quite a lot. Um, so you were a co-founder of a company called At Unison, right? Which Yeah, yeah. Unison was uh, a few years ago. And, and it sounds like, I mean, it, the marketing on that was basically like Facebook for business, um, which my joke is, isn't that Facebook? Like, that, like does, well, that, does that mean you co-founded Facebook? <laughs> unfortunately, it's more like what Slack is today. Okay, okay, okay. But we were back before there was Slack and various mistakes and errors we made um, and, you know, didn't become a massive company okay. so you know, hats off to slack sucks for us but it was kind of like a slack before its time but but that experience of co-founding a startup sort of what is what gave uh, you your thinkfluencer wings and and what introduced you to the world of platforming and uh well i've been doing startups for ages actually I, my first job ever was in london um, and worked with a bunch of different um, startups at that time. That was just the, you know, after the dot-com bust. Um, so, so I'd been exposed to this, uh, this low-level jargon radiation for ages. So all, of these, all of these words people use, like solution and platform and next generation and, and so on. So it's, it's been a long... Um, teeming resentment for people who use those without irony. And that's where the, the, the parody comes from. Because there's so many people who use these things without irony. They're just like, seriously, what the fuck? What do you think makes Silicon Valley culture so toxic? Or do you think it's so toxic? Um, it's very homogenous. Um, there's a... Um, it, it's funny. It's, it's, in, in some ways, it's kind of racially diverse. Uh, it's, but it's almost all men. It's almost all a certain um, ideology from a founding myth uh, of these uh, genius men founders who changed the world. Um, and people buy into that myth a lot. Um, and and so it's self-sustaining in lots of ways that the toxic part of Silicon Valley. There's a real like survivor bias, it seems to me, that like people mm. will, will sort of be like, Oh well, you know, Facebook or Apple sort of did all this, and look at them now—they're a multi-billion-dollar company. And so, if we just do exactly what they do, then we're gonna—you know—and never mind that, like, you don't see the thousand other companies who may have made better decisions and and didn't happen to turn into multi-billion-dollar companies. And they're not like better business-wise; they're not better people; they're not, you know, the ninety-nine companies. For the one that succeeded, um, there's, a, there's a phrase. There's a phrase. Must be older than Silicon Valley, but um, every there's every overnight success takes ten years. Um, they they they, do, they forget about the other the other stuff, all the failures before, and just focus on the um, the, the success part. And a lot of the funding of Silicon Valley replicates what's gone before. What's gone before is genius. Um, white kid, a boy in his 20s who had a great idea then, you know, worked, uh, then it took off Google founders, Zuckerberg, um, Jobs, and so on and so on. Right. Like so the pitch itself. The Paul Graham, the um, famous VC, um, made some, made the point a few years ago that they want people who look like Zuckerberg, that's who they want to bet on. Which is, um, I mean... That is so obnoxious because everybody knows that pattern matching is a problem in Silicon Valley. Um, mm -hmm. But for him to explicitly, you know, it's one thing to sort of like know that it's a problem and to sort of like be quietly 
trying to work behind the scenes to kind of like unlearn the pattern matching that's kind of like sunk into your organization. But for somebody like Paul Graham, who's in charge of Y Combinator, one of the biggest, most influential accelerators there is, um, for somebody like him to explicitly say that pattern matching is our codified way of identifying our future leaders is um, abhorrent. Uh, it's pretty disgusting. Um, and it, it makes it clear that uh, there's no question as to why there's a huge uh, gender problem. Uh, you know, there actually is a big racial diversity problem as well. And I mean, I don't know if you work with like a ton of black people, but like, I mean, I personally know like a few black VCs, but it's just because my network is very diverse. Um, right. There's, there's very, very few uh, black people in tech. It's like a huge underrepresentation. When I was saying Silicon Valley is somewhat diverse, I mean, it depends how you count it really. Um, Chinese, Indians, um, people from countries with big government pushes to train engineers and developers. Um, but it's not diverse in, in a broader sense. Um, different continents represented. It's specific places um, like Russia, China, India. Right. Um, where people imported on visas to code. I mean, ironically, uh, you know, Eastern Europe is probably putting out some of the best coders there is because of hacking, because it's the most lucrative thing, <laughs> thing that, they, that they could be doing right now. <laughs> you know? it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a very, very strong for the Moldovan economy. <laughs> it really um, is. GDP. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, you have said the, the essence of good parody is that it doesn't have the label parody. Uh, because you, you actually wrote an essay for Esquire that was like, it, it was all about like what you were calling the innovation party, um, mm. which I also want to ask you about because, uh, you know, my thought is that like, how different is, you know, the modern day DNC from your version of the, the innovation party? <laughs> I mean, like, the DNC is so like, you know, focused on technocrats and whatnot. It's, it's like, is there a huge difference between your parody account and... Well, I think that the difference in C um, are kind of um, raven, power-hungry realists. Check. Check. Uh, that was the big fault of the Clinton campaign, that she looked, just looked so much like a politician that she would change any position, she would do whatever it took to win. Mm -hmm. um, she dropped the minimum wage, um, she'd drop anything if she thought it gave her a chess advantage. And the voters kind of sniffed that out. For all that Trump was, he wasn't a standard politician, which they're absolutely sick of. So Clinton was a politician. Um, and the difference between the DNC in that sense and the Silicon Valley people is that they're not politicians. They're quite detached from the mechanics of power and politics. So that, that article I was writing about, the Innovation Party, that was a suggestion from... Um, I think Jim Van der Hey, or whoever the guy is who founded Politico. Um, and the, if you wanted to have a serious critique of why the Innovation Party wouldn't work, you could just like list a million things in terms of electability, vote strategy, just anything. It's just it was some kind of pie in the sky that he pulled out of his backside and then put in a USA Today article. Um, about how, you know, we'd like to have innovation at the heart of the party and technology and blah, blah, blah. Wait, so that's so the, the, the Silicon Valley magic thing versus um, craven politician thing. I guess I didn't realize that that started as a serious proposal before you turned it into a parody idea. <laughs> yeah, but it wasn't actually... that different from the original. It's just like a twist, really. Oh my god! Because like one of the jokes in it was like, "Oh yeah, we'll we'll let citizens like fly their own drones over you know over Pakistan and you know and mm -hmm. vote for who gets obliterated." Right, right. It's a crowdsource. Like, how far off are we from that reality, honestly? I mean, like well, the scary thing is that stuff I joke about comes true a couple of years later. Like you know, stopping people getting entry to venues by by cloud score. People having their social media checked at the border uh, to look at their Facebook page by ICE guards. Um, the um, 
I think one of the reasons it's kind of funny but also sad is because there's, there's a tension between values and prevailing standard norms and what the underlying logic is. So as soon as Facebook starts to um, track data about religion, you know, the Muslim list and something like that, the mechanics are already in place to create a Muslim list that the feds have access to. But it's so uh, abhorrent and out of line with what the general norms are that, you, that you, people say, oh, the Muslim, Muslim registry, terrible, un-American, awful. And the tech companies kind of say, oh, well, we wouldn't cooperate with that. But guess what? They already have. They've done it. They built it. The mechanics were in place already. It's just waiting for the norms to catch up or for the, um, the most brazen people who ignore the norms up in Silicon Valley or federal officers um, who have a mission in their minds. They'll ignore the norms and they'll just catch up with what already exists. So basically you're saying that the only thing protecting us these days are cultural norms and, it's, and it, as cultural norms get stretched, uh, the tech is already in place to... Um, Basically, fuck us every direction, and um, and the cultural norms also get stretched because the tech's in place already. It's too tempting for um, the U.S. government to demand a backdoor from Apple or to um, you know get exploits for iOS and be able to hack into people's phones because um, they can. And it gets them short-term results but it causes much worse some consequences. So like they, the Fed demanded from Apple a backdoor without realizing that a year later, the Chinese government will do exactly the same thing, the Russian government will do the same thing. Uh, it's so obvious, but you have certain people with short-sighted missions, like they need to catch this criminal or do this investigation, um, that they, they're the ones who are first willing to flout norms, dismantle that standard, you don't cross the line, and then once you open the floodgate, that's it. I mean, it, it reminds me of how everybody was so titillated by that uh, recent Black Mirror episode uh, where, um, you know, everybody could see your sort of, you know, essentially your sort of, like, clout score, and, like, that determined, mm -hmm. like, you know, everything that you... Bryce Howard? Yeah, right. She she starred in that episode. But essentially, they have that in China already where you have a citizenship score that kind of determines like how good of a citizen you're being. And it's, it's essentially like a credit score, but for not just your money, but for all areas of your life, like how well you're obeying the government. And that's already in place right now. And the only thing that's preventing something like that from existing in America is just cultural norms. Like as soon as we start accepting... The idea of something like that, that's going to be in place here in America. Right. Well, I'll say one thing. We don't know it's not in place yet. Right. I 100% have something back like that. NSA, Pound 2, and so on. Um, it's, it's such an obvious move for them to, um, to to keep a mirror copy of Facebook, to cross-reference it with credit bureau files, with tax records, and so on. Um, they have all those pieces in place, and they have analytics software sitting on top of it, I'm, I'm sure. Um, to to make the most of it. What? Then what then will happen is there'll be some Washington Post story about what an outrage it is, then they'll admit it's true, and then it'll be normalized. What do you think the likelihood is that, like, Palantir is already running a version of that currently today? Well, I mean, maybe it's, it's doing it consulting for the, for the government. I don't necessarily think that um, Palantir, a private company, has a, a, a mirrored copy of Facebook's, you know, master database. Um, but I'm pretty sure the NSA does. I'm, I'm pretty sure NSA does, but also Palantir is contracted with NSA and they're contracted with CIA and DIA. Yeah. And um, I'm just sort of I'm just sort of thinking through how this would play, you know, like. And Palantir, I definitely think has the software capability of doing something like that. Oh yeah, it's very straightforward. You can match unique identifiers. Facebook actually buys in external data to inject into its system to enrich the advertising data. So you can, if, if a consumer is neglected to fill out their profile enough, including household income and so on, they can pull that in from um, credit reports, know, other, some other organization. 
these data warehouses like Axiom and or Credit Bureau. Um, so even if Facebook itself has amalgamated databases to build a more complete picture of unique individuals for you know, marketing purposes, um, NSA can absolutely very trivial uh, match up these unique identifiers, your social security number, your Facebook UID, and so on and so on. They can get you a, a, a fantastic picture of your entire life. So not to get too paranoid, but I literally like write about paranoia. Um, what is there an answer to hide from something like that? Like, is you know, would, would deleting Facebook be enough, or is there really no way to hide from something like that? I don't know, actually. Um, uh, deleting Facebook, I'm sure, would be a good thing to do for, for hiding purposes. Uh, Google increasingly has a unique ID. Um, which your, your Gmail address, which ties together your entire search history and so on. Uh, it's very hard to hide on the internet. It's become so corporate and the corporation is so large and due to their size, that gives governments a lot of leverage over them because if you're, if you're very big, the government can target you and um, hold your arm behind your back until you do what they want. So as a startup founder, do you feel any sense of responsibility over like this proliferation, this like data proliferation? I mean, it, it's a, it's a jungle where everyone's encouraged to get all the data they can and vacuum it up. Uh, I've never, I've never done a startup um, that I don't feel proud of, like it's doing something that's good or useful. Um, my, my last one was a, a Irish startup as a CMO that did anti-fraud like on the internet to block people's from stolen credit cards from being used um, so obviously I mean there's upside to putting the pieces together of this data as well um, and I've never been on the uh, negative side and I wouldn't want to be, uh, be on that kind of data harvesting side Sure. And your current role sounds like a, a Professor Jeff Jarvis joke, but it's real. Your current role is like head of content and research at Live Person, which sounds completely made up. <laughs> it's just like... like Everything says, sounds made up to you. I think, uh, I think you're, you're, you're a Hollywood liberal or something. Are you, you, you got in, in like, the bubble? I'm head of content at Live Person. Like, like one of your other jokes just was recently where you said, like, remember, you're head of community at your personal brand. <laughs> like, your literal job is head of content at Live Person. <laughs> the um, that was someone. Someone was talking about um, head of community. Oh, yes, that's because the Airbnb CEO added head of community to his job title, Brian Chesky, um, CEO and head of community, I think. Which is hilarious because as if like CEO isn't enough, like you're already at the top, dude. Like, do you have to be like top plus, like top plus all <laughs> of you guys? Well, it's like Queen Victoria, she had like 15 different titles, grand potentate of this country, empress of India, queen of England. Yeah, like... Could Right, she she ruled the moon. So Brian Chesky, like next thing you know, he's gonna be like, and like I, you know, I'm head of your living room and your living room. And... <laughs> yeah. Um. So one of your jokes is, I'm so I'm surprised no startup has launched failure as a service. <laughs> to me, that's a classic Professor Jeff Jarvis joke. <laughs> yes, yeah, um, that's another funny thing about Silicon Valley: the worship of failure. Um, they, they've, they've turned something which is just a, a common, um, like standard phrase that people would say that you only you learn most from your failures, and they've turned it to this weird worshiping, a fetish. Actually, they, they fetishized it. Like everything in Silicon Valley is a fetish. It, it, it is, and it, it, the thing is, like you know, it, it's like it's a good thing to sort of like not be too hard on people when they fail. Fail, like that's like a. You know, that, that's sort of like a, a nice, like, communal, human, emp empathetic human quality. But in Silicon Valley, they've taken it to where, like, an alien would almost think that in this group of people, failure is the goal. <laughs> you know, and like, 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 these idiots, like, want to fail because, like, all they talk about is, like, you know, failure win and failure is good. And, and, um, so I think this is such a well-written joke because, um, 
you know, tech people know that like software as a service is, is like this huge thing. And like, you know, that's the real money makers. If you can find a way to like, you know, swindle people into buying software as a service. <laughs> so, so your point is, uh, I'm surprised no startup has launched failure as a service because that's all, that's kind of all they're really peddling to these VCs is like, you know, we're going to fail better than these other jackasses. So uh, failure as a service. It's mm-hmm. a but to fail fast, that's what they say in Silicon Valley. Yeah, fail fast, and it seems like that's all everyone is doing. And um, I, I heard somebody else say that um, venture capital is basically welfare for white people. Um, <laughs> it's pretty good, right? That's kind of funny, yeah, especially given that there's there's such a trust network and giving money to your friends or to uh, people you know who are like a solid bet um, and, and, that you and- haven't... And contact with, with with the with the assumption that you almost certainly will basically set the money on fire and fail and do nothing with it um but but mm-hmm. there's just this like like country club atmosphere with like well you tried you know and like yeah. if if you handed like you know some some people who just got here from Mexico that same pile of cash like and and they basically set the money on fire like they'd be written out of town on a rail <laughs> you know like a round, you know. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's, it, it, like just the amount of um, of just sort of like cultural in bias that there is, you know, associated with venture capital is is astonishing, and it's also a gender thing. You know, it's not handed to women uh, for the most part, and um, yeah, yeah. There's um, yeah, there's a tremendous inertia and set of conventions. Um, yeah, yeah, that means. Big problem. Yeah. Um, so uh, there, there was a Pope Hat blog post about uh, all this controversy surrounding you because people let, there's been a ton of media attention to your parody Twitter account, which I find hilarious. Um, but Pope Hat is this really great legal uh, blog. And um, so a First Amendment lawyer uh, on Pope Hat wrote, all satire is a shared joke between the writer and the reader at the expense of a hypothetical third person, the dupe, who takes it literally. That third person is specifically uh, is a specifically complicated, co- contemplated feature, not a bug. Um, and so, you know, not to get all like, let's explain comedy, but um, you know, for comedy nerds, some comedy nerds love explaining comedy. Um, one of my favorite things is when people especially like serious tech people like take your tweets seriously mm-hmm. and that's often. to happen often right yeah yeah i get to these these long-winded arguments back at me um you know inadvertently uh, fulfilling the the premise of the joke when like to me it's so obvious that you're joking because like no no normal rational person could could like hold the premise that you're, you know, the, the joke premise that you're putting forth. And yet mm-hmm. it's, it's basically fulfilling, like you said, fulfilling the premise of the joke that then a serious tech person is arguing with you that like much of Silicon Valley actually might hold the premise of any given <laughs> joke. <laughs> and it's disturbing considering that my, my character um, almost always has a joke name. It wear, the character wears a, a beer hat, which has been converted into a Santa beer hat by Das, the cartoonist, or the, the Photoshop uh, wizard. Um, there, there was... And, oh, please go on. And, and, and it's like a, a patently ridiculous person and character at every different level. The bio is completely absurd. Um, it's just like sheer nonsense. So when every clue points that way, but then the, the uh, Silicon Valley person runs the opposite direction and falls on the floor. There was one uh, recently, uh, it was regarding Uber. I don't remember what your original um, comment was, but it was something like, um, you know, this some this wasn't your exact joke, but your, your joke was something along the lines of like, you know, this is the pinnacle of innovation, like that they're, 
something around Grayball or something like that, which Grayball was was their like technology to like subvert regulations. <laughs> you know, you were like, great to see companies innovate like this or something, you know, something like that. And 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 some jackass was like, you know, I can't believe you would think this. And it's just like, <laughs> yeah. The um. Yeah, you know, one thing I, I, I love to do is the is the Silicon Valley like head fake that to the other day with the, with the gray balls thing. I, I say that um, really hope Uber does the right thing, and you'd expect that to be like to shut down this program and so on. And but the, the answer was like they should open source this so everyone can use this technology. <laughs> you said something like that I think already, which I, I think is a hilarious premise because then like the idea is that. Um, you know, everybody gets to use, you know, gray ball that we, we essentially, you know, the, the logical extension of that joke is that everybody subverts all regulations, the government collapses, now we have a new government by Silicon Valley, you know, we worship at the new gods now who essentially already run us, <laughs> you know, I mean, there's... Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of that thing. They're always bringing up proposals in, in California to have it be a, a separate country. Um, they, they come up with things like, uh, wasn't it Rationalia, a country governed by tech? Um, they're usually uh, variants on Plato's Republic, um, forgetting that probably it's like a tyranny. There's no challenging the, the rulers. Uh, but ultimately, the project of a lot of Silicon Valley, the, um, the, the big thinkers, is radical libertarianism. Um, they're socially maladaptive people, and they think that uh, Ayn Rand was the serious thinker and not some lunatic. So, and they believe that a self-sufficient, um, like separate Silicon Valley state, will be a good thing. Fully libertarian, of course. Let's talk about libertarianism. Who who dies first? But do you want to, to, to continue, like do a part two or something sometime? Oh, you have to run. Okay. Yeah. You know what? Um, let's let's cut this short. And then, um, I, believe it or not, I have way more notes. Um, so I would love a part two if, if you have time for a part two. Um, yeah, yeah. It's fun. nice to uh, like have a back and forth in this cheeky Skype call. Okay. Um, if you don't mind, I would love for you to come back and do a, a part two because I have literally – Three more note cards full of notes of stuff to oh. ask you. <laughs> you mean paper cards like a like a caveman? <laughs> um, oh, sorry, I didn't realize analog. Got to go. So okay, so I will say goodbye and thank you. And um, next time we're going to start off with who's going to die first on the libertarian seastead. How about that? Oh, excellent, yes. Oh, and I'm going to put, make a note to ask you about how to buy drugs on the dark web with a treasure map, um, which is, you just told me that you just found out about. So that's going to be up next, too. How about excellent. That? Okay. All right. Thank you so much for doing this. Okay, bye. <laughs> bye. So I think that Rurik and I just found some new things to be terrified of. Um, thank you so much to him. That was such a fantastic interview. You can support the show on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash dreadsurface. That's where I post all my secret interviews. Um, basically, if I don't want to be part of the, uh, you know, if I don't want to have, like, my uh, my agitation be credit scored by Palantir slash the NSA's mirroring of Facebook. I post my agitation over on Patreon because look, we know that they're not going to shell out $5 a month to see what I'm up to. So I feel safe over there. That's the bottom line. But if you want to see it, five bucks a month will let you see all of my most insane ramblings. For low, low, $5 a month in support. Our producers are at Sleepy Geeky and at Kendama Gendial. Uh, our social is at Threat Surface on every platform. And I'm Julie underscore Bush on Twitter. 
Julie Bush on Instagram, Bush Julie on uh, Snap, and on Venmo. Feel free to shoot me some cash over on Venmo. Amazon. Amazon is a company that's one of our most precious sponsors. You can uh, help us out by going over to our site, which is redsurface.org, and uh, clicking through on the link that says like Amazon portal or a computer or something like that. And uh, anything you buy when you purchase your common household goods, um, all of your needs for the coming apocalypse, uh, will get a small percentage of everything you buy and won't cost you a dime. Um, hopefully, by the point that you're listening to this uh, sometime next week, there will be a Zeppelin ho hovering over your home, uh, holding all of the things that you might be inclined to buy permanently in some kind of like permanent floating storage facility hovering full-time over your house. And when you just have the thought that you want to buy from Amazon, uh, a hyper drone will be dispatched from the minute the thought leaves your neuron in your brain. It will fire from your neuron. The hyper drone will leave the Zeppelin, shoot down to your house, drop your packages on your front porch, and uh, hopefully, because you will have gone through our portal, um, in your mind, by this point, it'll be, there will be some kind of like mind portal that we'll be able to monetize. Um, this will be sometime next week. We'll get a small percentage of, of all of that stuff. All of that like cat deodorizer and um, parasite dewormer and um, foot rub ointment and um, unmentionables, all of it. We'll get a percentage. So keep us in mind. Throw us a throw us a little uh, couple dollars. Couple dollars in the in the garter in the old garter belt. The podcast garter belt. Um, thanks so much for watching and listening. And I'll see you next time.